Finding Happy, Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy is the new book by me, Nikita Banks, a licensed psychotherapist and life strategist. Leverage the knowledge you'll receive in this book to help you with the process of obtaining absolute clarity through the use of guided self-exploration. This process is necessary to help you master all your relationships in 2019 and beyond. Go on Amazon.com or BlackTherapistPodcast.com and grab your copy of the book guaranteed to help you redesign all your relationships based on two basic principles, health and happiness. Get your copy today. Welcome to the Black Therapist Podcast. The Black Therapist Podcast is a podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. Now, if you are new to our show, I am your host, author, life strategist, and psychotherapist, Nikita Banks, in private practice in my hometown of Brooklyn, New York. I am available for both psychotherapy and coaching sessions, and you can find more information about that on my website, NikitaBanks.com. You can listen to our podcast everywhere podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, SoundCloud, Pippa, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and BlackTherapistPodcast.com. If you are a mental health advocate or a therapist and you want to buy our podcast merchandise, you can do so by visiting our site. And if you want access to our free mental health tips, free online trainings, discounted selective services, and resources, do so by joining our mailing list by texting "get happy" all one word to six six eight six six. If you love the podcast, please like, comment, and share. We love to hear from you. And if you want to send me some feedback, guest suggestions, or simply to say hey, you can contact us at our website, BlackTherapistPodcast.com. Please be mindful that this episode and all of the information that we provide here is just a resource and a tool to help get you started on your mental health journey. If you are feeling any mental health distress or you are having any significant issues, please feel free to reach out to us so that we can find you a mental health provider in your area. Okay, let's go. Hey guys, so it's not going to be a big long um, introduction. (laughs) I hope you guys are all doing well and staying safe and like still trying to social distance. Um, But on this week's episode, we have an interview with Reverend Rob Lee, the fourth. We are going to talk about race and anti-racism work. We are going to talk about mental health issues and religion. We are going to talk a lot about my Aunt Bertha. (laughs) So stay tuned for the interview right now. Oh, and I also, I make an announcement. I make an announcement in the middle of this interview. And we're going to just jump right into the interview. Hey, guys. So it's not going to be a big, long um, introduction. (laughs) I hope you guys are all doing well and staying safe and like still trying to social distance. Um, But on this week's episode, we have an interview with Reverend Rob Lee, the fourth. We are going to talk about race and anti-racism work. We are going to talk about mental health issues and religion. We are going to talk a lot about my Aunt Bertha. (laughs) So stay tuned for the interview right now. Oh, and I also, I make an announcement. I make an announcement in the middle of this interview. And we're going to just jump right into the interview. Uh, Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is the Reverend Robert W. Lee IV. I am a descendant of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Um, I'm 
his nephew from a few uh, generations back. And uh, I'm an author, an activist, and a pastor. Okay. And where are you from? I Oh, yeah. I, I am from Statesville, North Carolina, uh, down here in the, the middle of the, the heartland of the South and kind of a beautiful small town, but small town nonetheless. So we've got all our challenges and problems that we deal with, but I, I love it. Yeah. So how we got connected is because you're connected to my family, right? My great, my, my grandmother and great grandma and everybody else <laughs> before that it's from Statesville, North Carolina. And I've never met anybody else really from Statesville with, but with, it's the funny thing is, is I'm friends with someone that I met in New York and like her family is also from Statesville. So it seems like a lot of people love to come here for a little bit because if you look at it geographically, it is where 40, uh, Interstate 40 and Interstate 77 meet. So a lot of people, if you've just been through the South on the road, you will have gone through Statesville. Okay. And and for me, until recently, because I was in Statesville in February, but I have not been back to Statesville um, since I was nine. Oh, wow. Since... Yeah, since I was nine yeah. years old. So just being back was very weird to me. And I, I felt like the beginning of, of this year and the end of last year, like my ancestors were like nagging me to go home. And I kind of didn't, I didn't understand it. <laughs> but I was just like, I'm just going to go with it and not argue. So it was very good um, being back and extremely emotional for me. Um, States was one of those places that, you know, um, the Celtics described it as a thin place. Um, I think it's a thin place, you know, that place where, you know, you're, you're very close to whether it's your ancestors or, or, or whatever you want to call it, the, the hereafter. Um, there are places that are very close to that. And I think Statesville is one of them. There's so much history here. Um, and there's yeah. also so much pain here. I mean, this is a place that has been through yeah. a lot. And a lot of uh, there are a heck of a lot of people who are trying to make it a little bit better um, as a part of our country. Yeah, and and so the general, right? <laughs> he's, right. he's Robert E. Lee, correct? Right, right. That's correct. Okay. And so where was he from? He was um, from up in Virginia, so the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, he lived at a, a, a palatial mansion called Stratford Hall, um, and. Uh, he was born up there, and then uh, along with the rest of his family, my family, and, um, you know, it was interesting. He eventually uh, ended up in Richmond and all over the place and fighting for the United States Army uh, in, in a war prior to the Civil War, and then eventually left the United States Army, surrendered his commission, um, and fought for the Confederate States of America. After the war was over, he uh, moved to Lexington, Virginia where he served as president of Washington College. And um, after that, he was, uh, you know, he, he died as president. And then after that, he became this mythological hero of the South um, and that we still talk about today. Um, it's just a very interesting and complex history. But for me, it's one that's very clear that what it was about and uh, what he fought for. And it's hard to kind of convince people of that down here because they view him as a hero. So um, it's been an interesting journey for me kind of reckoning with that and one that your family has played a very important role in. So, um, yeah, I definitely want to hear about that. But 
Um, so I'm from, so my grandmother is from Statesville. That's where she was born, um, Alexander County. Mm-hmm. And uh, she moved to New York, I don't know, at some point. Um, and so this is where we, we are all born in New York. Right. Um, only one of my aunts is born in Statesville, which is my, my oldest aunt who's pa- since passed away. But um, when I was 12, we moved to Alexandria, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the major highway was Lee Highway. Right, yeah. And I never knew who it was named for because it wasn't, I don't really view myself as like an extension of history. So just kind of being in New York, there there are names on buildings and places and then like these are old people and they no longer exist. It was just kind of like a street name. I really didn't have a concept of like history around how these monuments are created. Right, right. And and so it wasn't only until recently that I I recognized, oh, okay, well, that was what Lee Highway was. And it goes all the way through Virginia because it's Route 1. Right, right. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is so important to remember in all this is at one time, and even still today, people thought it's so important that that be named Lee Highway after Robert, you know, like there's this sense of like, you've got to make the connections when you name something, you obviously value it. And what you name, it also has to have value. And I think that's what people are missing in this entire conversation that we're having in this country right now is that we actually value these things that we're putting up or, you know, whether that's monuments or schools or, you know, roads or whatever, people value what they put names on and names have value. So how, how do you separate the pride from the horror or the, or the 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 truth of what the pride was built on because the pride itself is built on white supremacy but I kind of get why I mean as a black activist I kind of get why people want to have this idea of this you know anarchist separating from the government and just kind of fighting for what was right as far as he was concerned because I feel like that narrative is is bred into how white people see America anyway well and I also say that that narrative provides an excuse for not to having to address the horrors and um, egregious nature of enslaving human beings Um, you know when we talk about this conversation it's really people looking for a way out um, mm-hmm. They want a way out of being able to to avoid the 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 fullness of the civil war, and it's and it's really horror that it caused. Um, you know this this whole brother against brother thing makes us feel good because we think that we all came from the same place, but really this was a this was a separatist movement that was fighting against federalism and federal overreach for the continued enslavement of black people, and that's that's really all we can say about it in terms of why it was fought and, and you can't say it was for states rights because you have to finish the sentence there it was for states rights to enslave people and deeper than that if you need any proof you need only look at the articles of secession from the confederate states of america in which they talk about you know the the, the inferior race and slavery and why they are fighting this and it's just a it, it it makes your skin crawl if you're any sane kind of like well-thinking human being and I, I use that term lightly because i deal with it too I, i've had to think through this 
I think every white person who has to come to terms with it has to think through this, and they have to make a decision um, as to what they think about it. But I think you're right. There is there is a partialing out, and it's more for um, this this notion of whites feeling good about themselves. Well, it's social narcissism. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And 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 you know, I think it's also deeply flawed, both in sin and and you know, I, I know you do a lot of work with a. Uh, with all kinds of things. And I think it's also deeply in this, like, you know, inferiority complex, almost like mm-hmm. we've got to figure this out so that we can stay, you know, superior, but that I don't has, want to compete. Right. That has bred in a sense, an inferiority complex of like, we've got to overcompensate for this by explaining it away. So, and, and I, and, you know, as you can tell, I interchange we and the white race because I, you know, it's both. And like, I, I've seen some light, but I've also got a lot of work to do. So. Yeah, um, you said my family was instrumental in part of that work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was growing up in Statesville, and one of your relatives, Bertha Hamilton, who is uh, one of my favorite people on this planet. Um, I was attending Broad Street United Methodist Church, and um, I, it was time for me to choose a confirmation mentor, um, which is the act of joining the church in the Methodist tradition. And, and I say that I use Methodist there very, very uh, intentionally because I think that um, it also needs to be noted that, that Bertha is Baptist. Um, <laughs> she is to the bone a Baptist woman of color, and it is beautiful, and I love it. But one of the things that happened when we were choosing confirmation mentors is, one, there wasn't that many you know, people who were volunteering. And also the people who I got to choose from, I, would, like, I, I told my mom, I was like, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of this. You know, sitting here with these people talking about faith and joining the church and what membership means. And so, well, mom said, is there someone you would ask uh, that would help you with that? Because we want this to be a good experience for you. And my mom, of course, worked with Bertha. And we've kind of grown up having Miss Bertha as this uh, grandmother figure, as this, you know, someone we could text or call when we needed her. And she was always there. I said, you know, why don't we ask her? And I remember asking her, and I don't think she knew what she was getting into fully in the long, long game, uh, but she was happy to do it. She was wonderful about it. And um, I remember there was a night we were sitting in a fellowship hall of a church, and um, I had been talking about a call to ministry. I was toying around with the idea of being a minister. Right then I was convinced I should be a lawyer or a doctor because I needed to make money, um, which is a common narrative growing up, but... Um, I had finally kind of accepted that I wanted to be a minister. And um, I was telling Miss Bertha about this. And then we got off on a subject and we started talking about history and, you know, United States history. And I mentioned that, I, you know, of course, she knew this, but I mentioned Robert E. Lee and his legacy and how I had a Confederate flag um, hanging in my room. Um, this wasn't because I don't – I actually don't think my parents were, um, you know – actively racist in that regard i think they were just letting me have my own moment um because i tried to view it as the lost cause narrative of he was a gentle southern person and not an enslaver i tried to view it that way so miss bertha i remember her face looking at me and saying honey if you want to be a minister you got to take that flag down and she went into this moment of telling me about how the history of that flag and how it had hurt people and caused pain for people. And 
you know Bertha as well as I do that she's not afraid for a challenge but part of me looking back on that event that took considerable courage because I'm a white dude and we all know how white dudes can act and there could have been a recoil there could have been this moment of just me being mad or angry or yelling and there wasn't it was just a a, a, a full and complete connection in which I felt really guilty so I took the flag down um, and I came back to her that next week in the same fellowship hall and I told her I, I took the flag down and I was expecting to have this continuation of the conversation about how bad I was and not that she ever said that but I, I felt bad I felt like crap and she told me uh, I knew you would and we moved on and it you know th there wasn't a there wasn't a gloating or a look what she did or a it was just a, I knew you would. I knew you'd make the right decision. And so this conversation for me is deeply personal because it took a woman of color uh, to remind me of the fullness of who I am. And it was a very humbling moment. And I'm not also want to be careful here and not say that it's incumbent upon black people to tell me my junk. But she took a risk and had that conversation. And mm -hmm. I am forever in her debt. I was looking online because I know you guys were both on CBS um, in an interview. Right. And I was trying to find that that um, video, but I couldn't. But I came across something that you I, I don't know if it was a sermon that you wrote about her. And I'm paraphrasing, but you said when you see her, you see God. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, uh, a lot of us have to imagine what God looks like if we believe in a, a deity of sorts. And, and for me, it's Bertha. There's no question about it. She is a window. She is one of those places that, and people that you go to and you sit there and, and you see the heart of God and not to get too much into your family history or to her family history, but she's been through a lot and yeah. through it all, she has chosen to remain courageous and, um, Open and, and loving open. and accepting. You know, I'll, I'll tell this. Like she accepts every. <laughs> right, she <laughs> like... does. Right, there is no, there is nothing that is beyond the realm of her possibility to talk about in terms of just like what God has in store for that person. Like there is nothing. And here's the other yeah. thing I'll say. It was really interesting. I don't know. Has she told? She, well, obviously she hasn't told your listeners. So I'll tell it. Um, we took her with me and my wife Stephanie, and my mom and dad, uh, to go meet President Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter. In, I saw the picture in yeah. Georgia and uh, you know while we were there we were sitting and uh, Stephanie made a comment that you know Stephanie's she's a very a vocal person and she made a comment about someone who was standing there uh, who was obviously very much in disagreement with what was going on and it was just a weird situation but Miss Bertha had her Bible and she was just tapping it and uh, she opened it and she said Stephanie you need to read this and so it kind of humbled <laughs> Stephanie, too. Like, she's not afraid to do that. And, you know, she would have done that to President Carter, too. You know, it's not – she is an equal opportunity uh, disperser of wisdom. And, and, and she doesn't see it that way, but that's what she does. You know what? Because she's the baby. Mm, um, there you go. Is it six? Yeah. It's a I lot. It's, it, I, there's, think, there's I mean, yeah. Relatives, so, I think it's know, six. I don't, so. rem I don't remember. Um. And she was also like held up by the rest of them. 
um, being being the youngest and being being the prettiest. And I mean, she wouldn't say that, but I'm going to say it. Um, it's just so family roles and the roles that we are assigned. Right. Um, she was kind of almost raised as like a, a only child in that space, even though she had to kind of navigate these relationships with, you know, old, much older siblings. Because my I want to say my oldest aunt and her are about the same age. They were about the same age. And so um, she's the one that I I always knew the most out of my, I won't say the most, but I, I knew out of my grandmother's sisters because three of them actually lived in New York and then some of them lived in Statesville. So I never really saw the relatives that lived in Statesville. Um, and so in contrast of the, the way I interacted with the rest of them, she's always been the most accepting of like whatever it is that I come to her with. And when I read what you wrote about her, because she, when I mentioned it to her, she hadn't, she didn't know that that's what you said. Um, but when I read it, I kind of teared up because I got it. Just kind of that love and acceptance that we're looking for when we are, you know, seeking religion. She has that heart. Right. Um, and right. she will gather you if you need to be gathered. But <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but she does it lovingly and she does it with a smile. And you know that it's love behind it. So you don't take it any kind of way. I think what's so compelling about Miss Bertha's story is that through it all, and she, ha- you know, she has been through difficult situations upon difficult situations. Uh, situations that would have taken any other person uh, to their core and, and shaken them there. I think one of the things that she has always done is exuded love and compassion. Um, now, she hasn't always, uh, you know, agreed with you, but she will love you and she will work to understand where you are coming from. And um, she will then offer her opinion, and that's what she needs to offer. And she doesn't offer any more, she doesn't offer any less. You get the full yeah. picture with her. And, and, you know, I, I think, too, with, you know, some of the stories she shares of her being in New York when she was in New York, you're just like, that's really cool. Like, she also has lived a really cool life uh, so far and continues to do so. She continues to make a difference. Yeah. That's the thing I love about her. And I, her smile is everything. Well, and like it, it, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's like a tribute to Aunt Bertha. It wasn't supposed to be, but well, no, it wasn't. yeah, Let her smile is everything. I'll tell this one last story about her, and I know she's gonna not be happy about this, but it's a good story. <laughs> uh, I was speaking at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the the church that Dr. King was pastor at, uh, for the MLK celebration, and I was there with a bunch of different dignitaries, people that you know, from politicians to celebrities, and. Um, Miss Bertha and my wife were heading back to the hotel to get ready to, you know, drive back to, to North Carolina. And um, they got out and Dottie Peoples was there. Miss um, Bertha is a huge Dottie Peoples fan. She loves her music. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is kind of thing. And so uh, <laughs> she got out and, and it was like you had met a kid who had never met a celebrity at my wife's recounting. Like she had, even though Miss Bertha has met plenty of people who are really important, this was her like kid in the candy store moment. And uh, so she said, Stephanie was like, I'm going to go talk to her. Do you want to? Miss Bertha was like, no, 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 I can't do it. I can't do it. And, you know, Stephanie recounts that, you know, Miss Bertha wanted to meet her, 
but didn't want to go up to her. So Stephanie, of course, goes and gets Miss Peebles, and uh, Miss Peebles was very gracious and got a picture with Miss Bertha, and it was one of those just awe-inspiring moments for everyone involved because it was like, you know, Miss Bertha's our hero, and to see her kind of become this, like, really excited person for Dottie Peebles was awesome, too. So. Oh, wow. Now I need to see this photo. Yeah, it's so gonna... yeah someone has it somewhere, so it was a year or two back, so. Um, so she described you as always being an activist from a really young age. Where do you think that came from? I, I wish I knew. Um, I wish like I, you know, cause honestly, I wish I knew the secret sauce for this cause I want everybody to be an activist. I think everybody has the potential to be an activist, but I think deep down it came from my parents, uh, helping me surround myself and be surrounded by um, people like her and, and like, uh, you know, uh, I had a nanny growing up named Janie and, you know, a diverse crowd of people. And the idea that somehow they were less than me or didn't deserve to be loved the same way I did was, was a horrific notion for me. Because for me, activism is about love. It's love and action, really, for me. It's this idea that though we aren't where we should be, we're going to work to get there. And, you know, there's been moments in my life where I've been really frustrated or really um, saddened by the state of the world and the state of even my own life. But I know deep down we're all trying to make that journey together. and We're more richer for the experience if we embrace that. Um, you know, I'm very honest that while this activism about race and LGBTQ work is my passion in the church, um, I also work really diligently for mental health. I can't and I, you know, I, I'm very honest about my bipolar disorder in public and in public conversations. And I also think that has in some ways colored my experience. Um, because when you're dealing with all the, 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 the stereotypes, with the hushed whispers about who you are and uh, what you have to offer the world or what you don't have to offer the world, whether that's because of mental illness or what people think about LGBTQ persons or what people think about black people or, you know, any, any, whatever we've created. Um, there's a real sense of empathy. And uh, while you can't fully uh, empathize, you have this deep, deep abiding well of, I want to do something to make sure that this doesn't happen to my children and that, the future leads, whatever that looks like, uh, will be far more equitable and just in their quest for, for uh, peace and hope. Okay, I didn't know about the, the bipolar disorder, but how do you how do you reconcile this idea that we should just pray it away with, you know, the actual work that you have to do to kind of overcome or even manage the symptoms of just this this part of life that you're, you're dealing with right right well life is very much a roller coaster for anyone with bipolar disorder and then you add on top of that the fact that i'm on tv at you know midnight and have to be up the next morning at 4 a.m for another tv interview or on the newspaper and there's very little time for rhythm um right but the notion that i've had to come to is that yeah, as a christian i'm convicted that god created us and god created us with a brain and uh, that brain has gifted us with science and with medication and with therapy, all the things that make us who we are. Uh, you know, I, I, I am very convinced that 
you know, part of my caring for myself is making sure that I'm regularly checking in with my doctor, that I'm uh, also uh, taking medication that is prescribed to me at the right, you know, uh, increments and, and, and all that stuff. I think this notion that Jesus just wants us to do it by ourselves is deeply flawed, both scripturally and scientifically. Um, yeah. Jesus never suggested that uh, you had to pray to get rid of your uh, your illness. Jesus helped you, you know, even chronic people who were dealing with chronic illness, Jesus helped you, but Jesus also was there. So uh, Jesus also was in the middle of it. And so we have to allow that to through medication and through therapy. Yeah, because when I, I battled depression and that's how I ended up coming to this work because I battled it and I overcame it. But for me, my family was basically like, oh, OK, well, just pray. And I was like, I grew up in church all of my life. You think I'm going to try to? I think there's this notion that I've had to accept, too, that chronic illness is uh, very important to address. And you have to say for say it for what it is. Um, you know, right. I'm not going to get out of this and it, it's better for me to take care of it than for me to, to not, uh, you know, and if I don't, I won't get out of it. Uh, you know, it, it will be sooner rather than later me getting out of it. That's not a good situation at all. Yeah. And for me, I realized, you know, now that I'm able to, to do this work and I'm on the other side of it and I know how to manage when I'm starting to feel sad or like whatever's going on in my life, I realized it was a level of a skill set that I just didn't have. You know, my parents dealt with their, you know, mental health issues because we all have them, but dealt with, dealt with the mental health issues with just the resources that they were given by their parents or given by community. I needed a little bit more support than what I was given. Well, and I think activists to um, any type of activist, any type of person trying to tell a story needs to be honest about their story and what that story means. And if we're not, we have real problems, because if I were to come to you, uh, as some people tried to do and tell you all this great stuff that I'm trying to do and all this great awakenings that I've had, but not be honest about the struggles and the, the chronic nature of what I face and the, the debilitating sometimes nature of what I face, first of all, I'd be disingenuous. And second of all, that, that act doesn't last long. Um, so we've got to be we've got to be real with ourselves. And we're a lot different now than we were in my parents and in your parents generation of how we handle some of this stuff. Um, yeah. So we have to be honest about it. I, if, if you would have told me like years ago, cause I, you came to, um, I, I came to know you from around the time when it was this whole conversation started about these Confederate statues and you were like, well, I am Robert Lee Lee and no, <laughs> it's okay if you take them down we don't feel the same way that these other people feel about it um i would have thought that you were nuts in a way because it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of strength to do what you did like it's almost like for of the other white people i would assume that you're disavowing your legacy and so just kind of being able to kind of buck that and end the backlash that you faced from speaking out and being so vocal about it I would have already assumed that you were emotionally um overwhelmed with everything that you were taking on I, I will say uh, two things about that the first thing is that um part of my quest for all of this was was again uh, influenced uh greatly by an experience I had when I was in seminary at Duke um I was at Duke Divinity School. I was having a, a crisis of 
uh, of, with my bipolar and I was taken to the hospital and the hospital there was attached to the university. And, and I remember one doctor saying to me um, as we were in the pod waiting to be treated uh, for our various illnesses that he was going to put me ahead of the crowd um, because he felt that we had to take care of our own. Now, of course, he could have been meaning a Duke wow. student, but uh, he, we were, I was the only white guy and he was the only white doctor in this entire situation that we were facing. Um, and so it, it really, that has stuck with me and not in like a guilt way, just like, you know, that's, that's, that's atrocious because the, the, he could deny it of course and say, I was just talking about the Duke connection, but that, that wasn't what it came off as. And mm -hmm. so I had the opportunity, um, almost three years ago, which is the situation you're talking about, um, to go on to MTV, um, and speak at the VMAs, the Video Music Awards, in 2017. And in front of 5 million people that night, I said Black Lives Matter. Now, I was pastoring a small church at the time. Um, mm -hmm. my, the church I'm at now is different. And so I was at a small church at the time, and they did not like the idea that anyone who was anyone would say Black Lives Matter because they thought that it was a terrorist organization. Um, and it was astounding to me. It blew my mind. I was like, this makes no sense. But, but you're right. I think there is a sense of, for many people who are in this, how dare you speak ill of the, the, the people in our parlor conversations? How dare, dare you say we need to be better? We've done this, this, and this. And all the stuff they say is, is, is really not enough in the first place. But they think a lot of people like me feel like we've done enough, feel like we've said enough feel like this is just a, 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 a charade for a lot of people. So we've got to address that. We've got to be honest, and we've got to say, look, this is so much more than just three words. This is about systemic change that leads to people feeling like they feel like you. And I hate to put it that way, but for white people, that's what they need to hear. They, you know, they have had it made this entire time. We have had it made this entire time, excuse me. But we have to be faithful and say, look, if we've had it made, other people deserve to have it too. We just want to be left alone. Well, I like Black hear people you. just want to be left I... alone. We just want to have the same. Like we, our ancestors built this country. Right. You know, like literally, we did all of the all of the work. Right. You know, white white men have suckled it black women's teeth you know we, we 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 birthed the babies we fed the babies we fed the household I, I think black women in this country we've done all of the emotional labor and we've in a lot of ways historically had a lot more clout or like power in their households than white women did and I think that that's part of the disparity in or or the contentious relationship that we see sometimes between white women and black women in this fight for equality because I think white women feel oppressed because black women have always had these elevated voice. I won't say always, but historically had these elevated voices in their own households that I could understand why for white women, there's this, this hard time for them to kind of say, well, wait a minute, well, we're victims of oppression too. And, but it's just different. It is different. And I don't want to discount feminism in any way. I think we need to have a loneliness feminist conversation. That's a whole different. But that's a whole other podcast that I don't have to be on. <laughs> There's plenty yeah. of voices who are uh, available for that. Um, but I do think you're right. I think there is a sense of 
even and I'll speak to to what I know is you know from from where I am at least where I sit is there plenty of white men in Appalachia uh, near where I live and where I went to school who who feel like well gosh we've been poor all our lives yeah that's 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 penance enough in their regards but but not only is that speaking to the need for addressing capitalism in this country mm-hmm. but that's also speaking to you know yeah you had it bad but systemically you also had it better um you know we need to address the systemic ills and and the personal ills i mean you know it's one thing to say people are um you know not dealing with this systemically it's a whole other thing to say what they say in their living rooms um or at yeah, their I, Thanksgiving I, tables so yeah i get that they had it bad but they didn't have it bad because oh, of the color of their skin right right they maybe yeah. had it bad because of resources they had it bad Agreed, because of yes. their votes they had it bad because of opportunities you know they they may have had it bad because the, you know there's this clinging to ignorance sometimes Correct. just to to belong and trauma begets trauma and so i i get that part of it and i understand that they feel like their voices are shut out of the conversation sometimes but if you're voting against your interests or you're just aligning yourself with whiteness just because you believe that that's the only thing good about your identity it becomes a problem i agree with you um, I think what I'm having to do with this you know, monument conversation is say that what you've always thought is deeply flawed. And there's yeah. a certain risk in that. And I'm not saying I take it lightly. I don't. Um, we've had, you know, bullets shot at our house. We've had, you know, no. I mean, we've had security signs destroyed and defaced. I mean, this whole thing is very costly. And I'm not going to get, I'm not going to sugarcoat that and say that's something that we need to just, you know, gloss over it does cost a lot to be an activist but part of being an activist for me has been speaking difficult truths to people who don't want to hear them and it's also you know to your listeners and to people who are listening again i want to stress it's not your job to get white people it's my job as a white person to get my own folk and that's what i've stood by that now i was blessed and i was so incredibly grateful to have miss bertha speak truth to power in my life but I also want to ensure that, you know, her children and her children's children don't have to do that because that shouldn't be that way. It should be me saying, hey, that joke isn't funny. Hey, you need to take that flag down. Hey, we need to talk about the systemic ills. And, and, and not only that, but people being willing to listen. So how do we have these intra-racial conversations about, about structural racism? Because I, you know, you and I had the conversation on Friday. I am a member of NASW New York State and I won vice president, um, which I didn't announce on the podcast yet. <laughs> I won one for vice president. And for me as a social worker, I understand the privilege that that I have and being able to take people's children and take their freedom and, you know, lock them up in, in mental health um you know hospitals and so I know that 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 part of the job that I do has such an awesome responsibility it can't be done with any extra biases I have to take it on a case-by-case basis and being able to affect change in my community where I am and being an activist where I where I can make a difference but having these conversations with other social workers who in our code of ethics it says that we are supposed to be for social justice and to fight against oppression that these conversations are not welcomed 
amongst white clinicians. And it's very difficult to have these interracial conversations. And so like, how do you, what do you think is the best way for the black people who do want to take that charge and do want to have that conversation to, I don't know, get through or to start the conversation? Well, I will say this. I, I want to first, you know, make sure that everybody's clear. I certainly don't know what it's like to be a black person in America. And I don't know what it's like to sit there in that position. Um, it's hard. It is, I'm sure. And I, I don't want to, uh, that is an important thing to underscore. I will say that, that what has compelled me the most from my colleagues that I work with and people who help keep me humble um, and keep me on track and keep me in my lane is stories. Um, you know, stories are so important and I'm not asking you to create these huge narratives that are so eloquent. You know, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking for people to have these conversations with common ground and common stories because I think we're all trying to be really, you know, really on our, on our toes right now. And we don't know what to say, but if you said to me, Hey, I just want to tell you the story of what happened to me today, or, Hey, I want to tell you the story about me growing up and what I experienced when someone said something like that and what I felt because that story, they can't take away from me. White people like me can't take away from me and we can't change it, especially if it wasn't us. But it helps open our eyes to the reality that though we think we're woke, our people aren't woke, and we aren't woke either. And wokeness is a false narrative anyway, but, you know, that's another conversation for another day. You know, we're always working. But I think, you know, if people realize, hey, this is not how it should be again, then we have work to do. And again, that also comes with following up with not only collegiality, but, you know, this is how we can make it right. Um, structures and systems that will help. You know, I think one of the things, and I'll say this, and I'm very careful about this, I am all for defunding police. But I think the narrative that's being constructed out of the white community is that we're talking about removing all police officers from everywhere. And yeah. everything, you know, and that's a, that's abolition of police. And that's another step that people want to talk about. But this notion that we have to use, you know, vocabulary that, that gives voice to that. You know, when people say we're t- talking about defunding police, we're talking about we've defunded education for years now. Like, you know, if you say that, people start to think, well, mm-hmm. I guess. And definitely mental health. Oh, and mental health. I mean, North Carolina is one of the worst in that regards. So this notion that we're talking about anything else than allocating funds is uh, is something that a lot of people have constructed in their heads. And so what I'm asking for for everyone, you know, black or white, is to be honest, um, you know, explain what you're trying to say if you need to explain it or if it requires explanation or if you feel comfortable explaining. You know, there has to be a comfort there. But in a real sense, you have to say, look, I don't get this either. You know, for instance, if you didn't get what I was saying about systemic structures uh, based on my experience as a white man, I would hope you would ask and feel comfortable asking. Like, I think there's a comfort level there that has to be there as well. I think the thing that's so exhausting to black people is just the lack of empathy. Like when Trayvon Martin's um, trial happened and or George Zimmerman's trial happened for killing Trayvon Martin, I just remember watching it every day with my mom. And um, I was just blown away 
that there were white women on the jury who would not understand that I'm a woman and I'm going home and I'm minding my own business and I'm on the phone with my friend and I'm walking in the rain and there's a car that's following me and it keeps following me and then I go to cut through you know a courtyard to get away from them and then the person gets out and then they are you know attack me and they're on top of me and that they have a gun and then I'm fighting for my life and then they shoot me but yet it's self-defense for that person. I was just having a hard time understanding the concept as a woman who moves in this body, who, you know, can, can, can visualize how I would feel if this car was following me and I'm just minding my business and on my way home. I was having a hard time believing that they would not side with this child. I agree. With and, you. Yeah. and the terror that I had having to tell my, my son, I mean, I don't even remember how old he was at the time that the man was let go. Right. It was frightening for me. So for, for me, the the struggle that I have as a black woman who's a lover of black people, love you know, I'm I'm the mother of a black man moving around in society, just this lack of empathy where it seems that white people can't put themselves in our shoes on just the regular circumstances is really what's heartbreaking about having these conversations. Well, and I'll also say, you know, with that, that is in and of itself what needs to be said. But with, you know, you, you think about hoodies and BB guns and all the stuff that comes up in these conversations about what people were doing or what people, no one deserves to die for that. But deeper than that, my parents never had to tell me growing up, you know, put your BB gun away while you're walking down the street of your, of your, your home street or in the park or in the park. Like that was never a conversation. The other conversation, right. don't, don't, you don't, you shouldn't wear a hoodie. Like I have a hoodie in the rain. Right here in you the wear rain. a hoodie yeah, in the exactly. rain. It was raining. That's what right. a hood is for. And then deeper than that, I think too, one of the things that needs to be heard that, that really struck me is Mr. Brooks, Rayshard Brooks, who was uh, shot in a Wendy, Wendy's parking lot. Um, I didn't watch. I didn't watch any of it. You don't I'm not need looking to. At it. I'm, I'm not looking at any of but it. I, I I don't, was, I'm not I, following it. Because it's just, it's just pain porn to me. It's, well, like, it's yeah. so much trauma. I can't do it anymore. I will say that he was 27 years old. And I'm 27 that. years old. And I'm sitting here right now struck with the idea that I feel even on my worst days, I have life ahead of me. I have things to do. I have people to love. I have things to accomplish. He was the same. Mm. Now, we were different, obviously, in the color of our skin, but I'm sure he had the aspirations that I have and the love that I have. And maybe it was more contextual for him because he was someone who has been oppressed as a black man all his life. But I know this, that we both have life ahead of us. And the fact that his was struck down is atrocious and sinful and wrong. There is no excuse. No excuse. What advice would you give to white people who are engaging in this conversation and they want to be allies? Well, uh, I think um, that's something I feel a little more comfortable uh, you know, <laughs> going at because uh, I've had to do it. I think one of the things that the first thing I'll say is that if you post on Instagram, that's nice. But if it doesn't follow up with like concrete action to be an activist, 
you're you're an Instagram activist, and sure we need that, but we need you to to give to black artists and writers and poets and uh, people who are activists who are working every day for this work to bail funds, uh, to to defense funds, to all this stuff. You have to be both. You have to have skin in the game in a sense. You know, like you got to be in the game for this. I would also say that. Um, the art of listening and the art of empathy is, as we've already stated, is 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 a lost art sometimes, and we need to re-embrace that notion that we need to be together and we need to be having these conversations, as difficult as they are, um, without the presupposition of someone coming in to educate or change on either side. We just need to hear the stories. And um, I know that my fellow white cohort has stories of either themselves by complicity or, um, you know, commission or omission, as we say in the church. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we have engaged in, in racism. And we need to tell those stories, not for, not again, not for, for porn, you know, in that, you know, like violence porn or racism porn, whatever. We don't need that. We just need, like, the cameras off, people listening, people responding. That's what I think will lead to activism. And I don't know, and, and again, I'm not one to say I have all the answers. I don't know how that would look in each community. But I know in my community, it means a Facebook message I have with the other people who have coordinated protests in Statesville. And we've been there talking about who we're willing to talk to, who we shouldn't engage with. Um, because this notion, again, that we, you know, I, we don't have to bring every people, every white person along. Like the sheriff here in this county, he's done. He's, I hope he knows he's, his days are numbered with his election coming up in a few years because people are fed up. But we do see that there's possibility elsewhere. So it's learning where to focus, how to focus, and how to tell stories. Yeah. I don't know how you separate, like, your history and your legacy. Maybe just because it, it was a new thing for me. But being in Statesville and seeing my ancestors' names on things. And I'm a black woman and I'm from New York. So that's not a thing that we that happens here. But just just seeing that my grandmother's street had our last name on it and like, you know, the Mooney Farm and, um, you know, we're lackeys. So the, the, the lackey farm, like seeing my ancestors name on things was kind of freaky to me. <laughs> it was weird. Um, Aunt Bertha took me to our family cemetery. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, it's just all, it's just us here. Like right. this is just all of us. It right. was a weird concept for me who in New York, I'm so far removed from that. I don't know how you separate like that legacy with that. I mean, you've, you've obviously you've had a, a longer, I mean, this just happened in February that I like saw all of this stuff as an adult for the first time in my life. But I don't know how you separate that from you and and still being able to have your family pride but understanding that what they did was wrong i'm not proud I, well i will say i'm not proud of robert e lee i'm not proud of any of the lees who committed atrocious acts of enslavement mm -hmm. and trade you know treachery against this nation and against people what i've learned to do in all of this is decide to be a, a different footnote um i will never eclipse robert e lee uh, there will always be a more famous Robert Lee. 
But that doesn't mean at the bottom of the page there can't be a footnote that said this Robert Lee tried to change that. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's not why I do it, ultimately, because this is ultimately about other people. But in a very real sense, if you're asking about me personally, I'm not proud. I'm not. In fact, I'm horrified in some ways, and it keeps me up at night, but that also drives me to change things so that it doesn't happen again. I think other white people have to tap into that. I was on a message board today on Facebook, and it was a white minister who was speaking to, you know, a black person in church, and they they wrote down these these things, and he was like, well, every time you bring up slavery, automatically we shut, this is the minister, automatically we shut down, because number one, I've never owned slaves, number two, you've never been a slave, and number three, thank God for, like, Bible-toting um, or Bible-thumping um, people like me who abolished slavery. So I was like, you want to remove yourself from slavery, but all of a sudden your ancestors were abolitionists? Like, you were never an abolitionist. So it's just kind of like this this separation of, like, all or nothing in the nuances of racism. I think it shuts white people down in the conversations. You know, in the conversation, I have an intern who's white. I said, I think it's difficult for you to think about your granny who made you cookies and, you know, knitted sweat knitted you sweaters and think of her as actually being a racist but she can be both oh yeah and i think you have to parcel those out and i'll also say this um a relative of mine saw me on don lemon and called uh my dad about how you know horrible the you know don lemon was going off and everything uh, about this and how you know we all just need to take a breath and my dad, you know, dad's not – he's not been the most vocal person about this, but he said, yeah, I actually think that's kind of the point. And I was so proud of my dad. I was like, yes, this is a moment that I'm going to celebrate because he started talking to that relative about George Floyd and about how George Floyd can't take a breath now. Mm-hmm. I mean like this whole notion of we all just need to calm down. This is not the time for, for being calm about what's happening. Um, and I think so many – White people who are just now seeing this for the first time think that this is the first time. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm having a conversation with with the class I was teaching is, gosh, the in I think white people are really glad we didn't have social media and the ability to cam take you know videos during the 1960s. Um, because if you see the pictures of people that did, they were either in blackface or killing people. So, you know, like this whole thing of like of of we have to just calm for a second. No, this is not the time. And we also have to acknowledge, too, the church's place in this um, Mm -hmm. and the white church's place in this, especially. Um, There's a fabulous book that I've uh, committed to your listeners and ones that I've read to my students. It's called The Civil War as Theological Crisis. And it talks about how. People, uh, abolitionists in the North preached the same text that Southerners in the South preached almost on the same Sunday. But the Southerners were justifying slavery with it. The Northerners were justifying abolition. And that's not to say, of course, that North and South automatically equals equality. Uh, You know, the Northerners had their problems, too. But this notion of the church was active Yes, okay, yeah, that's nice, but what about Nat Turner? He was a pastor, and we shot, you know, like, like all these people who were uh, who were active in abolition uh, were deeply faithful people, but so were the people who wanted to continue the enslavement. There is a pew at Christ Episcopal Church in Alexandria named 
for where Robert E. Lee sat. Yikes. So this whole thing of, well, yeah, but the church helped. No, they didn't. That's that's stupid. I'm sorry. I don't accept that. There's probably a better word than stupid, but that's just <laughs> patently false. So Yeah, I, I, I don't understand evangelicals hold over or, or the, <laughs> their commitment to this president. I think that he's everything he's against everything the Bible is. I, I agree with you. Um, and, and he likes to, to, to flaunt that sometimes, but I will also say that for the, for the Trump administration, they took a gamble and with Mike Pence, who is also equally as horrifying, if better spoken, um, you know, they have tried to win, um, the evangelical vote and the evangelicals have sold their soul. And, and again, you know, I think the, the politics of the church too are going to have to come out and be put in the light because look, you know, ministers are not absent uh, of political leanings. So tell us, tell us where you stand. I know you're not supposed to proselytize. We can sit down somewhere else. Let's have this conversation because if you're actively supporting someone who wants to keep Confederate mon- you know, names on military bases, then you're actively engaging in white supremacy and racism. There, there, it's no qualifiers or anything. It is equal to that. Because, you know, if your son were to join the military and go to Fort Benning in Georgia, go to Fort Bragg, wherever, you know, he would have to serve in a place where that name was after someone who wanted to continue to enslave him, first of all, and also fought against the United States of America. He was a traitor, yeah, and they lost. Right. And so, again, this whole separatist thing breaks down when they, when you find out, oh, wait, in 1865 they lost. So, you know, there's there's that brokenness there. But. And this idea that the South will rise again. Rise again against what? Against whom? Right. And, I mean, and some people have said that's a false notion that isn't happening. It's happening. It happens. It is happening. I mean, I go to a Home Depot uh, there, I talk about this in the bu- my book I wrote. One, that one time I was in Home Depot, and it's happened again since then that people will say, oh, your name is Robert Lee because they see it on the credit card. I said, yeah, and I automatically know where this is going. Are you related to him? And I'll say – because I know where this is going. And, and they'll say, the South will rise again. That's what they'll say? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and some of them are, you know. Against it. My uh, question is against who? Against America? Right, right. I mean, but they have this <laughs> Because the South that, rise, like, they, they rose against America. Right. And they don't connect the dots. And that's the unfortunate thing. And I think Southerners need to learn. And I'm going to say this, and it sounds a little crass, but they need to learn to finish their sentences. And I don't mean that to insult their intelligence. I'm just saying that if they're going to be honest about, you know, what happened during that war, it was again to enslave people like that was what they fought for um and so we need to be clear about that even here in new york i was taught it was i I mean i knew slavery was part of it Mm -hmm. but i was taught that it had more to do with the industrial industrial revolution and money right and that's a that's a common narrative And, and, and i'll give you this the south may have lost the war but we won in the history books so we won our ability to tell the story the way we wanted to uh, because Reconstruction was so awful um, that in the end we are telling the story that it was about the Industrial Revolution and the cotton gin and all this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. But 
but but at the very basis of that even if it was about the industrial revolution the cotton gin all the things it was because people were afraid of losing their livelihoods over enslavement yeah so I, I was i was educated in brooklyn new york i had all black everything in school, in school our principals teachers everything and we were taught black history right and so when i moved to alexandria virginia um for the first time in my life, I read um, Huck Finn. And so part of that, we were supposed to do like an art project based on the book. And I wrote a poem about slavery mm-hmm. and, and the effects of slavery. Now, mind you, I had a black, you know, education in, in Brooklyn. So I knew about black history and all of those different things. So my teacher read my poem and she was like, it's amazing. And then she proceeded to have me read the poem to the other classes. I don't remember if I was in the 10th grade or 11th grade. And I had this conversation with each class and I was, it's a, it's a horrible thing to think about now to do to a child, but I had to argue why slavery was still relevant and how racism was still relevant and this was in like maybe 90 1990 and she praised the poem she said it was you know it was was wonderful but just sitting it was the first time I I had I was like dealing with white gays like I had all of these white classmates it was basically they were saying that I was a racist racist because I was acknowledging that racism still exists and persists in our environment. And it was a horrible experience as I think about it now. I was so proud that I wrote this poem that she thought was a great thing. But sitting and having to repeat it to class after class and have black kids and white kids who were privileged students. Uh, we went to school with Thurgood Marshall's granddaughter. Uh, Clarence Thomas lived down the street. But to have this this narrative that racism didn't exist, I felt gaslit. I felt like I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, that in and of itself was almost enslaving to make you justify um, the history that Alexandria, you know, the places of all places, fought to ensure, you know, in a sense. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I actually do think it's very serious. I think it's enslaving. Uh, and yeah. it's, it is a history of education that is broken. Um, it leads to a history of healthcare and schools and prisons and all these places that have been perpetuated in this notion that slavery is dead. But when in reality, it's not. And this COVID crisis yeah. has made that clear. The prison systems make that clear. Everything is built in this country on race. And right now we have the eyes and the ears of the nation upon us. And we have this opportunity to actually say, you know what, this this is not us. This is not who we're going to be. And that takes an active choice, and it's not just one choice that we can make. It's a choice that we're going to have to make for the rest of our lives, as white people especially, um, that says, you know what? We're going to engage this conversation. Now's the time to do it. We should have done it 400 years ago. And I think the last battle for you know, civil rights in this country is going to be to make the United States live up to the ideals of the Constitution. I think that that's why our rights are violated so much because black people are expected to just exist in this country that we, we weren't thought of in the constitution. We weren't allowed to have, you know, constitutional rights. Our constitutional rights are being violated every single day. We don't have the right to bear arms at the same way. And, and, you know, our first amendment rights when our, our politicians or our basketball players or our stars say anything, white people tell us to shut up and dribble. 
right so it's just this battle for the the fact that we're just allowed to exist here and be glad that we're allowed to be americans as if it hasn't been bought with our our work and our our blood right since the revolutionary war black people have always fought for this country it it the the last stand for us will be to uh, make America stand up to the constitutional rights and, and extend those rights to us and enforce it and protect it for us. Well, and I think that that's really what we're seeing. I think you're right. And I think what we also have to acknowledge too is that it, we've also not only acknowledged the existence, we've commodified existence. Um, mm. If you act this way, if you look this way, if you dress this way, if you don't do this this way, you get to live. What if we told that to a white person? Like, if you, you know, do this, you're good. That would be, to many, to all of us, you know, appalling. Well, we've been doing that to black Americans for a very long time. You know, yeah. this, this notion of commodification of existence is real. And we have to talk about it. And we have to atone for it. And we have to not only atone for it with our words, we have to talk about it with our actions and policy and money and everything. We have to engage the conversation because for me, this is not just an issue of what, you know, my friends think of me or what you think of me or what any misbirth. This is about what God does and how God works in the world. God's allowing us a chance to go for justice, to go for the big thing that we've always worked for in this country, at least on paper. Let's do it. And I don't want it to, to go unsaid that when you spoke out at MTV, you're you faced backlash from the church that you were um, the pastor at. Right. I mean, I did lose my job, but it, for me, it was clear in Mark's gospel. Well, you resigned. Well, yeah, job. yeah, yeah. And, and to be very clear, that was a forced resignation. Um, I had two okay. choices. I could um, either stay and recant the, uh, the, the decision or my decision to say Black Lives Matter. Or I could, uh, they would vote on my tenure, and the vote would most certainly have gone the way of me leaving the church. So I resigned, and I think uh, the resign was not easy. I, I, I lost my job, and that's how I say it, because it was a loss. I, I grieve that. And I also say very clearly that Mark's gospel says, what good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your own soul? Mm -hmm. I would have lost my soul had I stayed there. I would have lost a lot. And I'm not happy it went down the way it did because I wish that people would be okay with, with these conversations. But I'm far better off because I had a soul uh, and a soul that is convinced in the worthiness and the worth of every human being. Well, you're doing God's work. I hope so. And I, and, and I, I mean that in a sense of uh, I, I know I fail. I know I mess up. We all do. But we've got to get up and keep trying. Mm -hmm. I mean, but just to have the courage and have the faith to step out on faith and do it. Like I told Aunt Bertha, she was asking me something about the position that I got. And I was like, I don't know. And I was like, you know what I feel like this is like? I feel like it's like that song, Believe I'll Run On, See What The End's Gonna Be. Because I'm just like going. Mm -hmm. I'm just stepping out on faith. And I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what this role is. I don't know what I'm sacrificing. I don't know what I'm stepping into. But I do know that it's worth it for me to do what I can where I can. Right. I mean, 
we've we've all got this you know martin luther who was the famed reformation minister in the 1500s they said that one time he was asked what would he would do if the world were to end tomorrow and he said the world were to end tomorrow i'd plant a tree today and so i think many of us are fearful and rightfully so of what's next i mean it could easily be that the president gets angry and tweets something and then you know there's all this stuff happens the sequential events but we got to plant our trees now because the time is pressing uh, you know as the, the old black church saying the the time is short and the moment is pressing um yeah that's true the, the we we have to press up against the reality that that we don't need to miss out on this moment the one question that I would ask white people, because usually when there's these these conversations about, you know, someone who says or does something that black people identify as racist, the 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 retort is always, oh, well, I don't know what's in his heart. Like, I, I'm 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 struggling with how white people actually identify or define racist because it's like it doesn't have to just be kk clay and like lynching right i think you're right i think um but that statement is just in his heart which we've all heard is deeply um rooted in excuse building we've gotten really good at making excuses as white people in this country yeah Yeah, really good at that again i think that that comes back to the love because i think most white people love a racist Oh, yeah. I mean, that's true as well. And so how can I, you know, lay with my husband or love my daddy or love granddaddy or grandma, mama or whoever who took care of me and was good to me? And, you know, sometimes, sometimes not. Right. But how can I remove myself from that part of myself if they're all good or they're all bad? And we're just like you said, we're flawed. Right. And I think the notion that any of us are all good or all bad is actually deeply flawed as well. You know, I think we're complex. Pathological thinking is called black or white thinking. Right. And we have to have the, the, the identity that we, you know, even though, um, you know, as you said, the relatives that we love and they, they are deeply flawed. Um, but it is incumbent upon us if we know that they are flawed to do something about it, to help them become better. I think that's, that's the, the ideal. Oh yeah. I think it's very difficult. I, I recognize that, um, and, and I've heard that from countless church people. It's difficult for, for us to confront people. And I, I, you know, I've read my Bible a few times, and I don't see anywhere where Jesus said it was going to be easy. Nope. Jesus was just required us to do what's right and implores us to do what's right and calls us to do what's right. And doing what's right means addressing those realities, even in their difficulty. But Jesus also promised something else. In, in the Gospels, he promises that we won't be alone. So we have this person with us. God is with us in our struggle. And, you know, that sacrifice is is no more than God's sacrifice. He sacrificed his son. But we have to stop asking black women, you know, and black mothers to to stop sacrificing theirs. Because it's not a choice for us. God is uniquely empathetic in the ability to, uh, to know what black women are going through. But I also believe that God knows that we can be better and should be better. Um, That we are called not to have these 
calamities happen upon black mothers who lose their sons, who lose their daughters, who lose people that they have loved, to lose their fathers, to lose uh, the loss is incalculable. Um, so, so we we have to ensure that that doesn't happen. I just shut down, to be honest with you, because my my challenge as as the mother of a black child is to be afraid for him all the time and like tell him the things that he needs to hear but at the same token still allows him the freedom of like living his dreams and not being limited in in what he desires in life but it's it's a fearful feeling at all times and i'm sitting here thinking about what you just said and i don't know the fullness of that I, I never will, but uh, it, it, it causes me to want to continue this struggle and this work because no one should have to feel that way. Yeah, he's a he's a good kid. He's never given me a moment's problems, anything. He's gone to the best schools here in New York public schools. He went to school with the mayor's son, and there was an incident in, in school where um, him and another student were playing in between classes he was sitting down writing something in his book and the other student who was not black picked like tried to snatch his pen so he snatched it back and it flew across the room I got an email from his teacher who was black but I got an email from his teacher who was like your son threw a pen at me in a dart like fashion (laughs) and I was like whose kid at first you know because I'm I'm my mother's child, so I'm like, if the teacher says it, it must be true. Right. So I'm like upset. I'm gonna kill him. I'm like, I'm like going up. But this is the like, until eleventh grade, this is the first negative thing I've ever heard about my child. And so I called his dad, and his dad was like, Nikita, he, that doesn't even sound like him. Like, wait till he comes home from school. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so I read the email again. I read the email again. The dean called me from school and it was like, well, there's nothing going to be on his permanent record. And I was like, permanent record? Wait a minute. This boy has never in life gotten in trouble. So much to the the point that his principal in elementary school was like, um, the whole school had gotten in trouble because they had a food fight. And he said, my son was sitting at the table reading. And so I finally got on the phone with the the teacher and the teacher was like oh well um you know yeah he threw the pin pin at me in a dart like fashion I said you're criminalizing his behavior did did you are you trying to say that my son intended on throwing a pin at you I said and he was reprimanded there was a scuffle between him and another child who was not black was he called to the office did they did they contact his mother and they were like no and I was like I want to speak to the whole entire school because I don't understand how this is something that was perpetrated against him, but you criminalized his behavior. And, and, and you guys are trying to put it on his permanent record in 11th grade. He's going to college. Right. It's systems in place. And I, th- I also want to say something you know, that I heard when you first talked about him. He said he's a good kid. I hear you, and I believe he is. But just the fact that he's a kid means he deserves to live and not be worried about this stuff. The qualifier good has been, you know, used so often as to explain why he shouldn't be that, you know, you know, as as many kids have been dead, you know, well, he was a good kid. Yeah, he was a kid. He deserves to live. He deserves to have this freedom and, and even mess up if he needs to. 
even if that's not the what ha- you know you get what I'm saying. There's this sense of yeah. we have to address this because you shouldn't have to qualify your kid's existence. No. And I get and what I'm... you're saying, but you don't have to qualify your kid's existence. But it's 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 this narrative right. that black people have that if you try to be good, if you try to be pious, if you try to be educated, if you try to be these things that maybe we can escape some of this. But I know that that's not that's not real. People white people tout Martin Luther King all the time as like this standard, but he's dead nonetheless. Well, and Martin Luther King also was had 14 percent popularity when he died. I mean, like this notion that King was the saint for people in the white world is just, again, flawed. So what yeah. we have to do in this narrative is say, yes, your kid is wonderful and good. But that's not the he's reason valued he should because exist. He's, he's exist because he's yours, because yeah. he has a mind, because he has a, a, a hopes and dreams and, and God made them. And God made in him his in image. God's image. There you go. Yes. That's the thing. Yeah. And so, so existence should not be qualified again. You know, it's the commodification. Well, if he offers something, if he goes to college, if he does this, if he does that, then maybe he'll have a better chance of survival. That's not, that's not good enough for me in this country. There has to be something better. I think I think that's just our you know search for meaning, right? Of avoidance of trying to beat the system in some sort of way. Well, and I think and it's, it's sad. It, there's also a notion that black people have to justify white anger. Mm. Why me? What did I do wrong? So, yeah. Thank you for this conversation. You made me cry, but. <laughs> Thank you. We continue on, and I'm thankful for you. I I really appreciate you doing this. I was um Josh, who's my cousin, put something up on Facebook about you, and I was like, I want him on the show. And then I saw a mixed text from missed text from you. I'm like, wait a minute, he texted me. What's yeah, going? Well, I'll do what Miss Bertha tells me and Josh tell me to do. <laughs> so, Cody I really appreciate Bill you. Are great people too, and I got to you know I know. I'm sure you've heard all kinds of stories about Gilbert. Um, your uncle, yeah, big Gil or little oh, big Gil, Gil big, uh, okay. And uh, I got to sit with him as he uh, passed away, and it was one of the most holy experiences. It was redeeming in a lot of ways. So yeah, I miss him. I miss him too. He's a, he was a funny guy. Funny guy. Yeah, I loved when he came around. So, well, you take care of yourself, okay? Wait, tell them where they can they can find you. Oh gosh, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, you can find me. Oh, I'm just, I was. Uh, yeah, we've had a great conversation. You can uh, find me on uh, Twitter at Rob Lee Four. Um, you can find me uh, at www.robleefour.com, and my book about this particular issue is A Sin by Any Other Name: uh, Reckoning with Racism and the Heritage of the South. Okay, so once again, we want to thank Rob Lee for coming on the show. Um, As you heard, this was a very personal interview, and I really appreciate um, us having this really candid conversation about race. And this time it needs to be said, it needs to be done. And yes, guys, if you listened throughout the show, then you know I won my election and I am now the vice president of NESW New York State. 
And so I look forward to fulfilling my duties and finding out what all of them are <laughs> and contributing in this space and, um, you know, continuing to be a resource now to more people in the field, but also to the people in the field who are not part of the chapter. OK, feel free to continue to reach out to me. And yeah, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, you can follow us on all our social media sites at Black Therapist Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter, as well as Black in Therapy on Facebook. Or you can follow your host, me, Miss M-S-N-I-K-I, thanks, on Instagram and Twitter, as well as you can find out any information about me at Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A, banks.com, and on the show's website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. And don't forget, if you want to send us any general feedback, show suggestions, uh, show topics, or guest ideas, please feel free to drop us an email at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Be well.